I'd love to just get kind of a two minute breakdown of who you are, your journey. Um, and because we both went to Imperial College London, I'd love to also hear your take on kind of what were your takeaways out of that experience um, going into your career? Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Let's take it piece uh, by piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so currently I'm an investment manager at Sterling Investment Management. So there's kind of too many managements here. So they are a fund. We are a fund and we invest predominantly in the listed market. I'm relatively new. I've been about two years with them. Uh, but I focus on mainly the private deals. So there's a percentage of that fund into private deals, mainly early stage. And uh, I, because of my technical background, I'll explain in a minute. So my role at the fund runs two parts. I do the full A to Z or the deal flow from deal always to close on the private deals, but on the listed, because you don't, they are out there in the market, you don't need to go and find them. I generally look at the technical and commercial due diligence. And really, we're looking at different technologies across a whole breadth. And again, mainly the fund focus on small cap and and early part of the mid, sorry, small cap and an early stage mid cap. So really talking about companies from 100, from zero to about 200 million pound turnover. And of course, depending on the type of valuation, whether it's a deep tech, clean tech, hardware, software, there are different multiples. So that's kind of my current role. A uh, bit of background, uh, you know, last 10 years, I kind of joined, got into the investment industry, meaning corporate finance. Again, the same sectors that I knew as in my experience, and I can lead you to this one in a second. So really, if you go from my graduation from Imperial College, I went to Imperial 1989, so it tells you been a while. I studied material science engineering, and then I did postgrad in Sheffield control systems. Then I worked literally across different industries in manufacturing, process improvements, really the whole breadth from sales on the shop floor, product design. I'll spend a lot of time on product design and procurement. And really, at my breadth, I kind of covered everything automotive, wind energy, marine, recycling. Um, you know, and then, and many of those companies grew very rapidly. That's why I also focus on the early stage up to 100 million, because a couple of the companies I joined, they were just under 10 million. And with a few years, they got to 30 million sales. Another company was about 10 million, it gone to about 60 million in four years. So I've seen real growth and I was very much involved in that growth. So that's why kind of the passion of growth, but it's this, the passion of, you know, in business has been even earlier. And then I had a business for 10 years in smart city. So mainly all, it's one of those experiences. You think you have a great idea. You start, you make lots of clients. And then over time, technology changes, market changes, recession hits. And, I, and that's a good lesson you know, getting smacked, punched, kicked all at the same time, as I mentioned in our last conversation. And that kind of gave me the impetus to get into the investment field from, say, a VC fund manager uh, aspect. And the reason is mainly rather than me committing all my time on one company by being an investor, I basically am 
more of a capital allocator, so I de-risk. So it's a different skill set, but possibly I might not make as much, say, money, but it's mainly more risk averse than having your own business. However, you know, if there's an opportunity comes in a company that I really like and there's an opportunity to join them or, you know, be part of the company as a non-executive, you know, the, the possibility is endless. But I think it's, for me, you know, obviously it's been quite a journey, nearly 30 years experience. Uh, kind of, I have the both side of the coin, you know, the actual engineering, technical, be part of the business, seeing growth. And then now I'm from the other side looking at the investments. Well, I think um, you're the first person to say the VC is risk averse. Anyway, I think most people see it as like a highly, for people with high risk appetite. Um, but it's really interesting, actually. So if you were to go back into kind of starting another company, would it be in the hard tech kind of climate space again? Or would it be kind of any idea that you saw opportunity in? Yes. So, okay. The, there's a lot of misconception on the naming. So let me just clarify this first. So the areas I focus on is clean tech, stroke, deep tech, stroke, and technology. So really the term clean technology lets me refer to this one it came out in the early 2000s and the idea behind that is any business that remove pollution and that's everything renewable solar wind you know waste management the whole shebang let's say you know uh, but then as time went on say by 2008 9 that's kind of the end of the clean tech and then literally the term climate tech, sustainable tech, green tech, you start having all these names coming up more like the 2016 kind of starting kind of the symptoms. I was thinking that too, what was the trigger behind that? Because I know I was probably too young to kind of really be into it and remember it, but kind of in the 2000s, there was a, a clean tech boom, so to speak, which then yes. if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, kind of died down a bit and has come back in the last, let's call it five to 10 years. Can you kind of like point to any drivers as to why that happened? Yes. So that, so that's kind of where back to the deep tech space where basically high capital investment and people label it more in the AI, deep, heavy infrastructure. So back to your terminology, all these technologies and engineering process have always existed. Okay, so it's nothing new about it. It's just the labeling is relatively new. So it's kind of hard to say what triggered it. Now, what the trigger was when I started my career in the early 90s in the, in the wind energy composites, you know, that is when you have the, the symptoms of, uh, to give you an example, the wind energy really kicked off in this 1973 in Denmark because, and we have, I think it's called the Orange Revolution. Uh, do check me out, I might be not exactly. Basically, you have the oil prices, the war between the Arab-Israeli war, the price of oil, I think quadruple, gone from next to nothing to $33 a barrel, which is, you know, in those days is a lot of money. Uh, and then the West couldn't get access. So Denmark being in a very awkward position, is focused on uh, wind energy. And they became the leaders in wind energy. So all the big players in wind energy are from Denmark, by the way. So you have Vestas, Aerolaminate, LM. Now, so that's kind of kicked in in 1973. And what happened is as the European Union also moving in Germany and many of the Scandinavian countries moving to that space, 
The problem with technology, again, we're back to, I'll go about technology like step changes. They, before they used to have wood or metal to wind, wind blades, and there was a limit, say 10 meters a blade lengthwise. But once they got into composites, and that's because I studied materials, so I know about composites, and composites like glass fiber, reinforced plastic, carbon fiber, and you have armed or Kevlar, uh, which basically what the material is, is you for the same weight, you get 10 times the strength or 100 times the strength, depending on what material you use. So, you know, you're basically building a structure a lot bigger with fraction of the weight. So then what happened is you get this adaptation of this technology, say, around the, probably the 80s. And remember, we're still in the Cold War. So by the, let's say, late 80s, when the Cold War ended, you have this flood of wind, basically composite materials free in the market. So that's kind of a, a substitute to, the, for because a lot of the manufacturers used to use it for aerospace. Now they're switching it for volume because they need volume to take that market. Hence, the wind energy took off. And there's a lot of subsidies around that space. So that's kind of what the climate, say, the wind energy kind of space kicked in. So a lot of the companies we were installing, the, the company, Structural Polymer Systems, that, that got bought by Zoltec at one time, and then they got rebuilt. The same team bought, you know, SP Systems team rebought them, and then they got bought by Gertz. So I left just before they got bought by Gertz, which is a Canadian uh, chemical company. Uh, so what happened, what I kind of referred to your question is, you have this evolution of, also you have Greenpeace being pushing for environment friendly. There's a less dependence. There's, again, in 1973 under Carter, he capped, he basically trying to make the United States less independent on oil. So there's lots of all these movements. But once you have um, other presidents come in, they kind of relax it. So now actually the United States is more dependent on oil than it used to be. So it's kind of, again, with we having all the problem with 2008, a lot of the policies in terms of preventing banks' failures since after the deep recession in the early uh in the in the 20s uh sorry in the 30s late 20s and 30s uh what happened is over time again this regulation will relax slowly 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 so what you're having is like these phases that's what kind of getting the message across so you have this huge movement european union and subsidy and wind energy that took on so that's kind of the kind of seeds of clean technologies. By 2000, you're having kind of two bubbles. You have the bubble of uh, the clean, the technology, the software, you know, the dot-com with the bubble, and you have kind of running in parallel as the clean tech. I think what people misunderstood, and this is where it's very clear, where even our, when I look at investments, because you have to distinguish between, rather than say, and this is where the term deep tech is kind of saying, what is really deep tech is high capital investment. Say, it's not so much just happy capital investment, it's you're creating something new. So you need to invest a lot of capital in it, into it. Now, the question is, is you could sometimes invest, you have to also look at it, not just in terms of how much capital you put in, it's how much capital you return on the investment. So I think we discussed a couple of questions uh, last time, a couple of companies. So kind of give you a flavor 
of what can be deep tech, you can make substantial money out of it or return. I, I'm, I'm keeping the language less financial, by the way. So, you know, I'm talking money rather than I should be saying capital or return on investment. Kind of keep that multiple, like you invest a dollar, you get say 10, 20, 30, versus if you invest a dollar, you make 20%, you know. So, and that's what kind of, why VC becomes more popular in that space, but there's a cautious like this uh, into in my conversation. So let me go into an example. So there's a company which I spoke with them. They are called Carbon Cycle Limited. They're based in the UK. They have what they are trying to solve. Again, it's in the clean tech, deep tech space. Is uh, uh, when you are mining for phosphate, which is phosphate is used for uh, uh, plants, so you have nitrates, which you think of it as the building block of the plant, which is amino, amino acid. But the phosphate, think of it as the builders. So you, you want you know the bricks and you want the builders. So that's where the phosphate fits in. As a byproduct, you've got uh, phosphate gypsum. And... That byproduct is equivalent of 300 million tons a year worldwide. And to give it a context how big a problem it is, and I say a problem because it is basically a, a dry toxic waste. It's not extremely excessive toxic waste like radiation, but it's in the category. So what people would do or companies would do would basically line a land and then lay the phosphate gypsum on top of it, so prevent it from leaching into the ground and obviously to the water table. That's in the Western world. In some countries, they just obviously dump it exposed. Uh, now, what this company is doing in about two, 300 million tons, to give you, because it's the density 1.2, so actually if you do the maths, it's roughly 200 uh, um, million square, so 200,000, I've got my numbers now a bit. I think it's uh, 300 million. Yeah, it becomes about 200 million. So basically, if I were to cover that volume, it will cover United Kingdom by one meter. And do check them. I did do the math a while back, so and it does work out. So trust me on that bit. Um, so it's a huge volume. So here we have a clean technology that when we cover the market, it's a big market opportunity. So what this company would do, would take that and turn it to literally uh, gypsum, which is a building material. And gypsum is used in many applications. Really three main, it's obviously in the, mainly in the construction industry and, and it's neutral. So you could use it for plasterboard, you could put for plaster, and also a big chunk of it could be used in um, cement industry. Also, when you're making steel, you get limestone, so it kind of fits in that area. It's interesting that this company kind of started on the carbon capture uh, theme and then end up going to this. And now carbon capture is coming again. Now, what they have done, they basically done this process. Now, we kind of go more into detail into maybe the valuation or what you think about it. So here is an opportunity that this company, in effect, creating a process which they would license and then the cost of maybe, say, 10 million investment, let's say for argument's sake. Uh, I'm not going to specify the numbers, but they're not far off. Uh, and, and quickly, what, what, is, what does licensing a process look like? So are we talking about well, building so up your own plants and your own factories or instead talking about licensing no, no, no. technology? So 
So what they do, they actually, they come up with a process, say a formulation. Uh, they obviously would pattern it. They would test it to the scale that the plant would need to. And that's a, generally, if I would kind of, I'm, this, I'm kind of sidetracking a bit. So basically, in a simple, in a, in a process, and that's even when I was in composite in, in the chemical industry, what you do, you kind of think of it like three stages. Stage one, you come up with a process, say, producing one gram a day uh, in a lab. And, and then you would, say, put the pattern on to prove the concept. Then you would spend substantial amount of money, say, a million pound or a couple of million to actually build a plant, a small plant that can say one kilogram a day. So now you move a thousand multiple and you, you will do the other tests. You know, you, you kind of now you are more of a bigger volume. So you statistically you are, you know, you have more data. This way. Then you get a third stage where you might be spending a five million pound on a process. That's why I say the combined effects may be 10 million. So initially maybe a million, then three million, then the final stages maybe five, six million, where then you would do one ton a day or two tons a day. So again, it's a multiple of a thousand. So every time what you are doing, you are de-risking the process. By the time you get to say a ton to two ton a day or per hour, depending on the scale of the process, of course, or what size of plot and eventually you're going to build it. But generally when you're producing that quantity, a ton, uh, per day or per hour, however you specify it, it is in effect, you seal the technology, you have found out everything there is. So now that technology, you could pass it onto an equipment manufacturer and say, here is the facility you need to build. And this is the cost exercise all done. So now in effect, what they have, they have a plant, they look at the market, they say, okay, here's the phosphate gypsum market. We could put this plant here. This is the cost of building the plant. This is the cost of processing it. This is the cost of selling it. So it becomes a, just a cost exercise and they build the plant. The beautiful thing is, is by after you have that validation process or a prototype plant, you know, depending on what name you label it as, uh, what you do, you basically give the license to all the OEMs you can find. So in the case of, for example, this, you could be building a plant of one, say every plant, say a million, uh, process one million ton a year. I can't give you the price, how much it costs and how much they potentially could make, but as a license, say they'll make a dollar per ton, every plant they build, they can get a million dollars uh, a year per year, you know? Uh, so you are now suddenly you have a license potentially for 300 million a year. So you literally spend it, say, 10 million in development costs and you pay for, you know, the, you know what people, you know, they'll pay for the license. And if you build 300 plants, which is very unlikely, by the way, there's, there's obviously I'm, I'm giving you the rosy side of things. And you could potentially get to $300 million per year on a 10 million investment. Yeah. You know, and if you and the thing is, every plant have a life of 20 years. So you can now multiply that potential 300 by 20. Yeah. So suddenly, even though it's a heavy investment, 10 million, and it's heavy engineering and this one, you still, obviously, the people who are building the plant, they're also making money. You know, it's, it's not, uh, you know, one person just gaining the whole. So, cost, so know? if I gather correctly, you're basically designing and perfecting a process. And once you've done those things, you have, you know, your checklist, you have a, a model for how it works, a framework, and you basically sell that framework on. 
Exactly. Exactly. Now the the side if uh, the the this you know in this case it's very good because you have patterns, you can lock out the suppliers, you have many advantages. Now obviously what you, you are doing constantly you have to do is add more patterns to it. So think of like an onion, you know, you're constantly creating more modes, more walls to protect that pattern. And within a pattern, it's not necessarily the pattern will give you all the secrets, you know, it would give you maybe half the secrets and the other half it is more the experience as you, you know, build a process. So you're not that so people, even though they would have the pattern, they wouldn't have that part of the secret. So so that's how kind of you kind of in effect you're creating a mode around your technology. Is is there not an element of time risk a little bit in terms of uh... good point. To to a couple of things you point out this one. So what it takes time to put a patent, come up with an idea first to process. It takes time to get the patent. Of course there's patented there's ex- ways to accelerate it. Also, the pattern has a life. So there are ways you can extend it, and there's other ways you can lock the industry. So again, if you're spending, say, you took you, uh, say, one year to develop a pattern, and it took you, say, 20 years to put it into you know, a process to actually validate the process, you pretty much wasted that pattern's life. There is a lot of people in the medical industry, they are trying to extend the life of patterns. So, and it varies from one sector to another so they might add another 10 years because the time to actually put the validation getting longer and longer so but i mean even even from the technological point of view as well right i mean is there is there not a case where technology or some other superior process could catch up in the time that they're you know patenting out validating the pattern selling it on to the customers who now have you know who, who are potentially locked in for however long they plan to use the plant uh, before a new incumbent comes along Yes, that could be very possible. It depends on who you're dealing with, but usually with the heavy engineering, if you can lock up your supply. So like, uh, you know, one of these companies, you know, they are, uh, this is a public domain. They partner with already an OEM. They different. So they, they, in effect, you, you lock the industry in directly, you know, through partnership. So that's how. So, it, it, so when you are looking for deep tech, you're not looking at just one thing to, to create a motor around your technology. You know, pattern is one of them. You're locking the suppliers, locking the resources where you're getting uh, the material from. You're locking the customers. And generally, these industries is slow moving. So even if a competitor wants to move in, they'll probably take them about the same time. But it, that, know, so it's that, like, that, oh, suddenly I'm going to go 10 times faster than you. It, yeah. it, raises, it raises the same question as well, because I was speaking to someone earlier who is working on a construction or manufacturing startup in like kind of IoT census and stuff like that. Um, and he said kind of, there is a huge wave to be moved or a huge kind of like mass to be moved when a new incumbent joins and trying to get all of these, you know, the likes of Bosch and Siemens and these kind of big industrialists to get, to kind of adopt a new player. Is that not the case for any startup coming in the space? I understand once you're in there, you're kind of in there and there's that displacement yes. effect, but how how can a new entrant actually kind of break into that? Well, as I said, this is a forging partnership. So for example, that company, it, again, it's when say a phone, you know, you want to build a phone, you don't go and start building a new phone. You know, what you do, you might be the one who's designing the screen or building a button or something or the casing. So, so you kind of get to know the ecosystem, you go to build that relationship, and then you add in another feature and another feature or another bit. So the same in that process, it's just too big. So a company will, in effect, 
what they are doing, like building a car, you know, like Elon Musk is doing with Tesla's building almost everything from scratch. But, you know, somebody's building the batteries for you, somebody's building the engine for you, somebody's getting the car for you. Know? So, so everybody kind of specializing a bit. And what you are doing, you are bolting on a new technology to an existing product. And then you expand from it. You know, you start small, you work, we are way big. And depend how big you want to, you know, and sometimes it's not worth, you know, you might be thinking, okay, I do this bolt on onto the, the phosphate gypsum. Another one would be maybe in sulfur. I don't know. It's, it could be other application. And, and the industry kind of, you could map it. So there's a group of companies say they're just specializing around the phosphate gypsum. There's others. So like, the mining companies, sometimes they, some of them are just specialized in, say, rare earth elements or precious metals, or it could be highly commodized materials like nickel, copper, you know, this, you know, you, know you, you get these specialities. So you are, in effect, finding your niche in a particular area. Kind of, I'm kind of now moving a bit into software because, you know, Peter Till, when he wrote his book, Zero to One, I don't know if you've read it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Essential yeah, yeah. reading. So Essential reading. Read, yeah, yeah. And same thing, his concept is exactly the same. Find a market that nobody is in it and be the number one in it. Now, it doesn't matter how big it is to start with. What you are doing, you're creating an area within that sector. You know, it might be a market worth 50 million dollars a year potentially and what you are you become the number one the main player in there you capitalize okay. on that being a big fish in a small pond kind of mentality exactly and then you go to then jump to the next market you know so it's a bit like amazon went into books then went to cds and then expanded and now that everything's getting, getting your kind of beachhead and then being able to expand out i think yeah i think crossing exactly. the chasm is another book that i've read it's very popular that um that explains yeah. that concept really well about how kind of the big tech companies of the 80s and 90s and all the software companies coming into the into the new millennium all focused on a beachhead market of very kind of strong supporting customers that could really buy into their core offering before expanding out i mean you look today at something like like IBM, for example, or even Apple, just computer hardware and software and these offerings and this and that and the app store um, and trying to kind of do all of it at once as a founder can be, you know, fatal. And I just want to quickly tie that back to the point you made about hard tech because I think it's quite an important point that is missed a lot. A nice analogy that I've seen is kind of skateboard to car. So instead of, you know, building the car, you know, the Tesla, whatever, in the first place, and trying to get all the components together, build the smallest prototype you can possible that's actually functional, that you can get in front of customers quickly, um, that can then kind of be developed and built out. And then maybe from a skateboard, you build the proverbial bicycle and you build a motorbike and you build a car. So each prototype gets more and more complex, but it still has utilization at every step. Yeah, but you have to also think of from an investment point of view and also for your survival. The reason why it works is not just it's easier kind of rather than trying to build a million things, you're just building one or two items and obviously the complexity is less. It's a cash flow. If I'm going to invest in you 10 million, you know, try to build a car company will need a billion, for example. But to build, say, a, a small widget or or I mean, I actually worked in a company that all they did was the the plastic interiors, you know, all the washers, all the gaskets. You know, that's their business. There's like 30 million pound turnover business. All it does is pressing cranes, you know. Uh, so, you know, all that you need to do is, and that's the point, you know, you, they started literally with selling one component out of rubber 
press it, you know, to cut it to shape or form or whatever. And from that, they had enough money to, or capital to keep the business running, expanding. And very quickly, they kind of monetized the whole gasket market, you know, for, and again, this company is in the early 90s when I first joined them as a you know, graduate trainee. Uh, so that's how they started. And I was lucky because the second generation, you know, uh, the founders, basically his son was already there, you know, so you, you know the true story of exactly what happens. Um, so yes, it, exactly that, you know, you, you, so you start small, you get your cash as quickly as possible, and you move forward. Because, you know, if it's if we think about, say, every seven to 10 years, we're having a downturn, you know, so if you raise money, capital, within seven years, you've got to be as independent as possible, stand on your two feet. So it's better just to do something small, to skip that chasm that if the market yeah. turns against you, there's a point about this um, crossing the chasm, which is comes back to man, you know, uh, manufacturing readiness, design readiness, is what is used in NASA a long time ago. Uh, well, still used. I don't know, because you did aerospace, I'm sure you know about it, where an idea would be, if we have a coffee, it will be uh, manufacturing or design readiness is like one. But by the time you reach seven, eight, the product is... Uh, ready for commercialization. But the thing is, every time you go step from one to two is a multiple of 10. So think of it, you, you have to go through a million steps. Now, just, you know, manufacturing ready is one to 10. It's nice, but you still need to make multi, many times of 10s the same effort to get to the million step. So every time you move one step, it actually gets up 10 times harder. So, you know, that's why they call it also the value of debt, because you are literally spending more, more and more and, and validation. So if one company I know in the electrolyzer space, hydrogen electrolyzers, they spent uh, on four, I think, full-time engineers or five engineers for two years full-time. All they needed to do is to certify their product. So if every engineer costs 50,000 pounds, probably another 50,000 for everything travel cost, that's for argument's sake. You know, you're talking about half a million per year because it's five engineers, two years, that's a million pound just to certify the technology. You have already, you built it, but in order to get it ready, because again, you have to think of it also the sector, like in the energy space, if it's going to be a device, as I know a company in Denmark does, basically electrolyzer for methanol. And so as a independent, like a micro generation space, it's independent from the grid system. So you don't need as much certification, but if you are actually bolting directly to the grid system, you have a different ball game. So you, right. you have to satisfy the big end. So again, you know, you could then pick a product that you could sell and then sell it to a smaller market or a market doesn't, depends on so much certification, get your name out there, get some sales, and then you could move on to the bigger. I've, I've definitely heard this argument for nuclear, actually, for kind of like SMR for small like reactors um, as, as a proposed solution, kind of either as a bridge towards, you know, this kind of idyllic future of nuclear fusion or to work alongside against renewables. I wanted to get your take on that, actually, since, we, um, since you kind of touched on clean tech at the start. 
I've been seeing so much on, you know, social medias and LinkedIn recently, people kind of spatting over, for example, the new cables going under from the proposed mechanism from Morocco up to Europe uh, to transfer all kind of all the solar energy there and people kind of arguing whether it's a responsible thing to do or not. I wanted to kind of know your stance on renewables versus nuclear fission in the coming decades and whether, for you know, for example, what, was Germany right to shut down the plant that they did recently? You know, was that a small move? Okay, that's, that's a quite a big question. The, okay, a decision like this on a national power, you have to consider a couple of factors. Now, uh, for example, in this, uh, and I'm going to a Second World War in Germany, the Nazis, when they took power, this is in, in 1933. The price of oil, I think, uh, I can't remember exactly, let's say it was 20 cents, say, per barrel. But they decided to do uh, synthetic oil through uh, the use of coal. And they were spending, say, like $20 uh, or whatever the Deutsche Mark at the time, something a huge factor, a factor of 100. The only reason they did it, because he knew he was going to go to war and he needed security. So when you're dealing, so this is like a story, like, you know, nearly 100 years ago. Not that long ago, but anyway. Uh, so the same thing with when you're talking about a country's energy source, it's not just about the cost effectiveness. You have to add into account security. You're adding a you know multi the kind of stacking different reasons. So sometimes it might, for my opinion, to shut down a nuclear power station now would be probably a bad idea because you already have it there. You just make it run for another maybe five years and then you might shut down when you know you have enough capacity through other means. Uh, so sometimes you, you build networks. For example, you're talking, you might build a couple of extra roads or when you're building a, an internet network, you have a, a bigger web. Just in case if a line gets cut off, you have a, a secondary line or a second or third route to come by. So, so, so kind of to make that decision, it's not as easy as straight, oh, it's bad and good. You have to consider everything if it's something to do with it on a national level. If it is more a local, like a village, then yes, you could then question maybe if I'm a village of 50 people, I might build my own microgeneration on anabolic digestion, which is basically all the food, anything biological, you know, you want to throw your food, anything, you could maybe generate gas, you know, you, you generate uh, fertilizer. So you kind of reduce your consumption, the local consumption and everybody. So in Germany, there's a company, I can't remember what's called, where they built something like hundreds of these micro generations in anabolic digestion. They're not very efficient, but for a village, it's perfect or for a small facility that may be producing a lot of bio material, that's maybe perfect, you know? So it's, so again, when you're looking at also the energy, it's not, you, you can't just say, or solar. So think of a, a curve, like also every type of technology, say whether you are dealing with solar, wind energy, uh, diesel, uh, hydrogen, methane, or nuclear, you know, you name all that. They all kind of have a a, a kind of um, let's call it um, a, a unique spot or a unique part of that energy curve. So, if I want to say travel for half an hour, 
electricity possibly is the best deal. If I want to drive from half an hour to an hour, maybe hydrogen, but anything above that, maybe it's better to have petrol uh, or methanol, and then above that is be some other you know source. So there's some depends. kind of optimization, right, for each distance. Yeah. So the question is like whether you want to build up infrastructure and the capabilities to kind of support all of these technologies, or are governments going to flow more towards the thing of I kind of put a big plaster on it, electrification of everything, or I understand like for example Canada or much more down the hydrogen route. Um, whether it will be a mix, or do you think it should all be kind of let's try and electrify it as much as possible with renewables? It's going to have to be mixed. Uh, uh, one, the cost of turning everything electrified, uh, you know, to, to use electricity, everything is, is too expensive. Uh, also, different countries have different uh, skill sets or different demands. For example, you know, China, for example, doesn't have much oil, so they're going through, you know, the coal route, renewable and nuclear. The same with India. While country like Saudi Arabia probably say, well, you know what, we have plenty of oil, why should we bother? We'll just go for nuclear. The next, you know, they'll just leap through that stage. Uh, the UK, we have a lot of wind and a lot of potential for tidal energy. That would be the way to go. You know, so again, it's, it's horses for courses. And within each, you have to consider the implication and interconnectivity of everything. So, and then you have to also consider some technologies, for example, this might shock the people on electric vehicles. So elect if you look at electric vehicles, their main advantage, well, there's more than one, but the main advantage, what they are doing, they are moving the pollution from the city, because everybody have a car and no park, and they move the pollution to the power source of that electricity. So in the case of, say, if we are generating electricity through coal or oil, you are literally building more power stations to satisfy. If we don't have any renewable, okay, so case one is we just convert the cars to electric. What we are doing, we're moving that power that we use to fuel the cars. We turn that fuel, instead of being into pumps, it goes to the power station. They would burn the fuel and turn it to electricity and we use cars. So in effect, we shifted the the pollution from the city to a central location. And, and maybe even maybe better. even added to it with the mining required to create all the batteries. Well, well hold on a So that's just kind of, that's the, the first thing. That's in terms of the pollution as number one. The big pollution is because you mine it once, but you're using the electricity every day. So it's like difference about volume. You know, one is one-off case and one... Uh, this, so, so what you've actually done, you shifted the pollution to the uh, power station. And then what you do, use filters to clean the pollution in effect. Or you can do carbon capture technology. So there's a lot out there which in effect reverts. So that's kind of step one. Now, step two, if you add the, another layer to it, of course, you are talking about, you know, mining lithium and everything else. And there's all sorts of, you know, issues around that. But in terms of volume, I don't think it's going to make much difference because, you know, you're going to build a battery once every 10 years, but the car will be running for that 10 years or 20, you know, per battery, let's say. So, you know, the consumption, it's, 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 it's very different. You know, you, you're burning far more uh, CO2 generating electricity than, you know, you are in making one battery. Now, what happened is, is if we keep that model, we are burning, say, the same amount of fuel, and I'm really being rough here, you know, so don't be too fussy about it. Now, the next stage would be 
if we have renewable. In that case, then the issue of the power station would be solved. So, so to think of it like a two-tier problem. We first remove the pollution from the city, and then we removed it totally from the power station. But that all costs money. We would call the green premium. You know, just like going buying organic food versus not organic. You know, it's, you know, there's an extra cost. Now, can the economy bear that, or more frankly, can we bear that cost? You know, we have 10% inflation is already a lot of people in pain. So, you know, it's a questionable maybe to reach 2050 to net zero. Maybe we should do it in 2000. You know, uh, you know, or uh, with the earlier. Who knows? You know, 2070. Um, it's not one to like two twenty one zero zero should be anyway. The point trying to say is is you might have to stretch that, and that has an advantage. It might sound like oh we're losing another twenty years, but in that twenty years, technologies has moved on a lot. I mean, I know a lot of companies who are in the lithium space and the battery space constantly improving the technology of battery technology, cars getting lighter using composite. So you know. This, even though we are delaying the net zero, actually, we might come up even with a better solution because we're having time to iterate, you have time to reinvent things, we have time to look at the issues. Because if you rush into it, you could be making more mistakes, you know, and it's far more costly. So there's that kind of balance. Well, with the, with the subject of batteries as well, I think it's quite telling that lithium ion hasn't even really been toppled since it came around in the 90s as well. I mean, we have a lot of, as you said, a lot of companies working on things like solid state, you know, things like variations on the lithium-ion technology, and none of them has, has been really displaced, probably because lithium-ion is so well understood, the risks are well understood, the manufacturing, the supply chain is all in place. So perhaps we are waiting for a big step up in change in technology instead of trying to, what we have now, which is quite incremental. Yeah, so, so, so lithium as a, power obviously source uh, so like energy dense when you look at it from the battery it is the best but it's the most expensive now the issue with lithium most people say oh it's not enough lithium there's plenty of lithium the problem is lithium is not mining enough the process you know enough is, yep. so if the price is very high what you're actually having more players will come in to mine it and process it. Yep. So you have one advantage in that, and so even the price is high, you're getting new actors coming into the market, new ways of mining. It actually, I'm seeing few companies in that space. But at the same time, being high uh, value product, you're getting a lot of people looking for alternatives. So for example, in the past, you had lead batteries. Now lead batteries are really cheap and nasty. So if you want a huge volume of electricity and you don't need to move it and you can build a tower out of it, Go for lead batteries. So the energy cost per unit is very cheap, you know, but you need more of it to produce the same. So the, the beautiful thing with lithium is the energy density, meaning you can pack a lot of punch in a small volume. And that's why it's perfect for, you know, laptops, you know, uh, mobile phones and electric vehicles. But what you'll find is maybe sometime like Tesla, they are moving to sodium, iron, and other facilities where you might be sacrificing the volume, but the unit cost is so cheap, it's worth it. You know, so, so there is this kind of competition as the price of lithium stays high, you're actually bringing more innovation into the table. Yep. So I don't know who would win. That's uh, obviously you have to invest in a variety of things. 
Is there so, any interest yeah, you take you're seeing there in particular? I mean, there's like DLE, yeah, there you're seeing like geothermal brines and stuff like that. Is there, is there no, anything I'm, that stands out to you? Well, okay, there's a couple of things. So actually, maybe I should have started with this one. So one, what I look for, I think that's probably where my investment philosophy that maybe clarified what I look for and why I mentioning a couple of these companies is it. Rather than say clean tech and tech, I like the term of innovation investing or innovation. Because yep. innovate, and that's kind of, we've gone back to my potential YouTube channel and, <laughs> and when I have my organization in the CFA. You can, you know, you can plug it now. You can plug it now if you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, 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 it's okay. So I've, basically, I mean, you know that this, I'm setting up a YouTube channel called Innovation Investing. And basically, I'm trying to, you, to support companies that I believe they have, this is in my opinion, so it is biased because I'm also an engineer, that have potential, not necessarily what they will succeed. And why I see, and I'll explain the potential maybe indeed, because that's my investment philosophy. So I'm not moving away from my investment first. All I'm trying to do is right now, the fund I have, I'm working at or other companies might not invest in them, I could always take them to the market, meaning to the retail market and say, here's a potential company. This is my study of it. If you want to invest, here it is. Obviously, I have to go through the normal FSA and all the other financial acronyms, you know, to tick the box that I don't want to, you know, ruin anybody's money and make it absolutely opaque. And also, I will have a skin in the game rather than other YouTubers saying, oh, this is a great company, put money in it and get my fee and run away. Yeah. What I would probably do is do something along the lines like 80% or 50-50, where the fee, half of it would go as an equity in the company. So if the company sinks, I lose my money. And if it goes well, I make money like everybody else. And the fee would be the other half would be actually the time, which is, that's what funds do is they get paid to find source these companies. You know, if it's on the stock market, well, it's out there, but if it's not, somebody has to go out there, find the company, researchers, and yep. close the deal with them. So uh, that's how would you, of out of interest, how would you, well, what would you kind of, without, you know, spilling a secret sauce, how would you get these companies to come to you? Do you already have like a good deal flow of your own yeah, personal so brand? Yeah, I have, I've been, I've been in the industry for a while, so that's a plus and I'm constantly building content. I mean, partly building YouTube. Uh, if I can create a platform where companies like the ones I kind of mentioned, kind of the philosophy I'm looking for or the investment uh, profile that I'm looking for, if I get to know, everybody knows about it, then these companies will preferably come to me. So Word I think like crowdfunding, yeah. Yep. Say, look, if I come on YouTube channel, Gus have vetted us, and obviously we are that category of companies. And then uh, the audience, uh, the subscribers will know that's the kind of style they want. Remember, I'm only focused on startup early, or early stage or maybe even growth funding. I, I mean, I, I don't know how big the YouTube channel will be and what kind of capital we could raise, but you know, I could see this Baby as steps. a potential. Yeah. Baby step exactly back where, where we started, you know. Well, to, to talk to me, talk to me then. Obviously, again, without revealing your secret source about what you would actually look for your investment thesis, maybe yeah, like kind I, of five, I, five actually, headline points. I want to, well, you want to talk. exactly what I want to talk about. Let's let's go. Let's is, go. This is what what comes. So so the the concept of innovation comes really in two parts. So you could invest something completely new tomorrow. 
and you know you change the market now you you studied you know aviation around engineering i did a, a bit in the aerospace so think of it again you know the piston engine when it first came out you know suddenly it became ubiquitous and the next stage you know and obviously got to aviation and then you have the jet engine came around and then you know decades later and then we have or well, maybe not so many decades suddenly rocket engines and then you have you know hyperdrive you know and all these different generation of engines that got the speed faster and first faster and higher altitude and you know uh and combination so so this is the first rule so you have something that's new you know and you generally and generally that will come up from research it can't just come out this one. And it's probably spin out of university. That's number one. I'd be looking for something like that. Uh, the second thing is would be an existing technologies uh, where there is a, a um, kind of they, the, as they evolve, this is ideally like solar panel. There is this called Wright's law, which is basically is uh, the equivalent of half-life. So every time you double a product, there's a percentage in the unit cost goes down. Now, we, most people know it as Murphy's Law or Half-Life. So every, say, two years, 50% of that cost is dropped. And, you know, you double that capacity or in nuclear, you know, it's, we have the Half-Life. The point we're trying to say, there are lots of technologies like ID, like battery, solar. They've been constantly moving down like one or two, three percent every year. Even jet engines, every year you become like one percent efficient one. But when you talk it, take it over a period of say 10, 15 years, it reaches a point where the cost benefit becomes absolutely viable. And this is where you'll see some companies that I've seen where suddenly they are this the idea has been around for a long time. But because everything got cheaper, you know, the miniaturization, you know, the image recognition became extremely uh, accurate and it can do, you know, spot check in a fraction of the time. You know, you're talking about maybe the, the other materials or other processes became very cheap. So suddenly when you are processing that product, you become more viable. So this company now, I don't have much dealing with them. I mean, I know the CEO, uh, and I mentioned it, uh, I'll, I'll mention the name is, is Big Six. So it's, uh, I like the company, by the way, it's B-I-G-S-I-S. So they are basically, and again, everything is in the public, their website, so take a look. So I'm just going to talk about the public stuff. Uh, and I didn't invest in it. Uh, so just kind of a disclaimer, I just kind yep. of know them. So what they do is they solving a problem that I think is, is fantastic company. The opportunity is there, let's put it this way, because we have to go through the different stages. So that's part of, again, when you're doing the investment philosophy, it's, you know, we first look at the idea, does it look good? Does it serve a huge market? Yes, then you go to the next stage. So this is a typical, of a bit like the carbon cycle, you know, company, where it's they're solving a big problem. So what happened is when you are uh, the biggest uh, problem for growers, especially in the berry space, so raspberry, blueberry, and the like, you have uh, what's called a fruit fly, which basically a very tiny fly that the female, and this is critical part of it, the female would uh, make a hole in the fruit to lay its eggs while the male doesn't. And obviously that spoiled the fruit. And especially uh, uh, a fruit like berries, we like to have it with chemical free 
and you know looking fresh and, and nice. Now, the data shows again, it's all on the website. It's about ninety percent of those uh, berries will be damaged you know, throughout the season due to this uh, fruit fly. Now. That's a statistic on a small sample, could be a bit less, could be a bit more, but check out the website. And, this, and they are counting on more research. So this is just a preliminary data on the, uh, on the public domain on the website. So what they have come up with this company is very simple, is they will grow uh, their own uh, fruit flies. So basically they have a female that gets fertilized, let's say eggs, and each leg would then hatch they would then identify which one is a female and which one is a male so and remember this is really tiny flies not you know and then what they will do they in effect x-ray the the males so they'll sterilize them and they will take the sterilized uh, males and release them to the environment just as the, uh, the season is speaking up or starting and what they are doing they are crowding out the market in effect so when you are, you know, for say, and again, it's, it's the numbers is you for every say male wild uh, fruit fly, you have a multiple of sterilized. And what happened then is the female, even she would mate with the uh, males, they would they would not lay eggs, and the, the population mainly would not grow. That's the problem. So as they are eating more of the fruits, they are laying more eggs and that's when you reach 90%. So what you're actually doing is over that period, you keep it constant. So you could probably save 80, 90% of, you know, remove the damage. Now for a farmer, that's perfect because you are in effect saving 80, maybe 70, maybe 50%. I don't know over the, because it's still, in, they have done a year study and they're doing a second now year and they'll probably raise money also. Uh, uh, so that's kind of company is perfect. And the advantage is why, I mean, if you know from the website and their information is, is because image technologies became really cheap, ubiquitous, high quality, you know, miniaturization, automation, you know, X-ray equipment safe, you know, study. So all these technologies been around, it just got so much cheaper that now when you combine it together, you know, it's worthwhile. I mean, I know other companies where space retail, I can't remember their name, I should mention them. Now they are company like, probably they are useful in 10 years time. And basically what they are doing is they doing basically a real estate, a space real estate. So they are like creating a, a ball. And where it happened is when you are traveling to space, you kind of assemble this ball through a robot. And this could be like a size of a room or two, three rooms. So basically you're building a space station in space. And the reason it's a ball is because it's the most structurally efficient structure and strength. And you're basically creating, if you look at 1960s and 50s space ships, they all have these balls compact together. So something like that, you know, it's like a series of balls you bolt it on and basically you're creating a big ship out of it. So it's like Lego, but instead of, you know, rectangles or cubes, basically balls. Um, and you just put it together. So it'll be basically like a miniature planet uh, or a miniature ball in space. And as I said, each one of those could be three, five meters diameter or 15 or whatever, 
diameter, depending on what size they want. So again, it is a very efficient way of using technology that already existed, but because robotics are better, the material uses cheaper and lighter. So you could basically move, it's, it's like assembling a house or like Ikea of space, you know? Uh, this, is like, this is like um, the argument of, you know, sof- software getting to a certain point such that it enables a transition or enables a step change. And you always talk about, particularly, I think uh, Gary Tam was a proponent of this. You know, if you're going to be successful, have a successful startup, not only do you need the right idea and the right team, but you need the right timing. Um, and maybe exactly. all the technology you've seen before in the past, particularly in hard tech, had all the kind of pieces in place. I can think of, um, oh, I forgot what it's called, but the the first like proto smartphone that came out in the 90s like magic yeah. ma- was it magic leap but maybe- yeah yeah it's even earlier than the 90s it's, it's, early, it's, it's a very nice dynamic look i can't talk now the documentary about it it's fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. 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 i was meant to say yeah and and just kind of all about how it came 20 years too early um so the you know the pro the very basis of the technology was there but almost like the world wasn't ready for it and maybe it wasn't ready to be rolled out or commercialized Exactly, exactly. So again, it's like the, you know, uh, kind of my business was in smart city is like what killed it partly, you know, you, we were making basically we were designing, I mean, the basic concept, think of it like, you know, home cinema or almost do, you know, you have a, a screen, a big screen, you have projector coming up and down, you should be maybe an LCD, you have speaker 5.1, whatever, you have remote control that turns on everything on and off. Now, all of these have to be programmed independently. Yeah, so you're speaking you an, alien, an alien language to, uh, to most of the audience. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you are connecting different things. Uh, devices and what happened is in the tech space is um, you know nowadays if you're buying anything home cinema is everything the software is in your iPhone already you pick an app so it's the term use plug and play so you're having many things that now you don't need an independent remote controller your phone is your uh, controller the software is already adapted. It's a bit like you when you are adding a printer or any device on your laptop or wireless. You just find you know the source. You know the unit of the actual say the TVs become cheaper and bigger. So you know you you're looking at here like four or five technologies all improving at the same time in quantity and the price is going down. So. It's, it's a matter of catching that timing. And then, of course, when the iPhone came about, suddenly a completely new ecosystem, basically the app world created, you know, or the apps were created, all these apps. And suddenly some of them, obviously, now, you know, we all know our life, like Uber, and they made fortune. So that is what happens. Like you, you suddenly have a point where everything comes together. You create a completely new platform, let's say, and a completely new industry sits on top of that. And then say years later, another evolution happened. And this is what innovation is really about. It's not about generally coming out with something completely new is very rare, but it's that steps, little steps that everybody's taking every day gets to, to that point. Also, you have to remember that generally innovation, there's a quite, uh, it's an old book about innovation where innovation kind of happens almost all about the same time. So when you're coming with an iPhone, it's about the same time, even with patterns, they all get filed roughly within the same couple of years because the idea 
the germ of the idea is kind of in everywhere. So the German might be coming with something, the British, this one. So if you are coming with an idea, act on it quickly, because the likelihood there's somebody else across the channel or in another country or maybe next door that's already thinking about it. So the execution it's, part is it's almost. Part. It's almost like a completely efficient market in that sense. It's like if we, if we draw on the other kind of tenets of your investment philosophy, one of them being that, you know, you need to wait for tech to get to the right stage and the right price. Once it does, you know, you you no longer have that moat of, you know, your idea or your concept that you're coming because everyone else can now enter the market, um, which makes it, it, you can agree or disagree with me, but it makes it so much more important to have your own IP and have your own expertise well, it's actually two point. It's, it's it's really funny this bit. It's so in Peter Till's concept is go to the be the first in his same book, be the first, it, and spend all the money you can get or raise to become the power law, especially in the tech space. And if it's yeah. hardware, it's different, you know. So usually in the tech software, whether it's B two B or B two C, however you want to do it, because you know the first two players, let's say, in the, who captured the market, there'll be only two players pretty much. And you'll see a lot in the tech space that you'll have like Microsoft and Apple, you know, you, you always have two. And this third one is like nothing <laughs> or next to nothing. And then maybe a fourth one. So again, it's like- I read, I read that actually, I've read an analysis on that. It's like in almost every industry, 70% is taken up by two, two competitors. Yeah. So you can see Coca-Cola and uh, Pepsi, and then everybody else uh, is, is nothing. Uh, yep. You get, you know, like, like a, a, a factor of maybe 10 difference. You know, you uh, that's a law, by the way, even when you are looking in the max and size of companies, like the power law, you know, the, the 10, you know, like 90, 10, then 80, 20, you know, they kind of works your way down. So, uh, and again, with like, you know, you have Mozilla, you have Explorer, but well now they have Edge and they have, so again, who is the one who uses most? Well, most people use Google, you know, and of course, uh, YouTube is the main player. What's your chat GPT now? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Open AI is taking well, the crowd. Yeah, obviously they're creating their own. I mean, the other day I saw a statistic like 12 million people using JB, uh, chat GPT every day. I'm like, wow, that's, you know, it's a huge amount. Anyway, the point I'm trying to get at, you have this philosophy, and I totally agree. But also, and Peter Tilbert, and I'll tell you one story, and it's just it's a British company you, we all know about, is the kind of the, the flip. So once technology is being done, the last one who innovates on that technology is also a winner. So I'm giving you a slide of Dyson, vacuum cleaners. Now, vacuum cleaners have been around for a long, long time, 100 years. Dyson comes in and comes up with the vacuum, you know, the backless vacuum. And now he dominates that technology. Obviously, the patents has run out, so everybody now is copying him. But the point is, since now, maybe in the next 100 years, we just have that vacuum cleaner. I have no idea what's the next stage. I'm not, you know... Uh, so sometimes it actually works the other way around, you know, you, because it's your last idea. There's no more steps to innovate on it. And so, I mean, it even is a case with software as well, because I think Facebook was something like the seventh social network or the seventh attempt. Um, and maybe through some kind of genius of Zuckerberg's, 
you know, understanding his customer or the way he distributed it throughout colleges and that kind of unique angle he had in it meant that he was not only to take kind of capture the market share, but also improve on where others had failed. I think MySpace and Friends and all of these ones were before him. Um, if you're the seventh entrance to market, normally logic would say like, oh, you're in the dirt, you're in the dust, you, you don't have a chance. Uh, but there is that potential to kind of look at what others have done and improve on it. Very good point. So I, I know a very good uh, fund manager who uh, I don't, don't touch fintech. Okay. So I usually like, you know, proper solving proper problems. Proper problems. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she, she did fintech right there. Like, <laughs> No, it's funny. It's funny uh, because you know because I've seen people refer to fintech as like the the original goal was to kind of create you know value for everyone and to kind of democratize money and you kind of see crypto entering this market as well and what you end up is just kind of the same infrastructure with a different skill in it right and just twenty different ways to wire your money and this and that maybe that's me being cynical but that's how I see a lot of the well, fintech okay, space. I, 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 I'm being here kind of maybe. Uh, to root maybe or if it's uh, reducing the thing uh, for, for me it's you know I like that back to innovation you know iteration right you know solving a hard problem you know fintech I find more of a service I mean a, a lot of the app is a service making something efficient and there's nothing wrong with that by the way is uh, I'd be very clear you know it's we all want efficiency we want productivity you know but for me as investment I find the the hard work again back to that term deep tech i've much whether it is a software or whether it's a hardware or process i'm more and that's probably the bias i am because i studied engineering you know uh, I, I, i'm not even i'm not even sure it's bias i mean i think for for both of us because we come from engineering backgrounds there is that kind of intellectual stimulation that you get from hard tech but yeah, i think it's uh, also just um I, I don't know. I just, I feel like the last kind of 10 years, if you look at the bull run or even since like 2008, where, you know, all this software is eating the world and kind of looking where it's got us. And now you have the rise of AI is going to basically eat up all of a, a vast proportion of the software that came before, before it is going to change the kind of jobs of everyone there that you're kind of only looking to hard tech for stuff that, okay, what are the hard problems in the soul in the world we can solve right now? And I think also VCs and investors are starting to understand this as well and kind of come towards the space. So I no longer think it's actually, or hopefully not that contrarian to look into hard tech and think, all right, this is, you know, some alternative asset class that I can, that doesn't have as, you know, long, longer time horizons and software is harder to get a return is more technological risk. I think more people will start to look at it as like, all right, this is, this is how we can build the future of tomorrow. No, I think it's, they will all we always will be in parallel. They're all working together. So it's, it's a bit like, you know, you still need to build the house. You still need the wires. You need to the bricks. And then you still need your internet, you know. So it, they, they, they are in synergy. You know, it's, it's nothing against either, to be honest. It's just, I think if my traits and my background and, you know, my father was a civil engineer. My mom is a dentist, you know. Uh, you know, so I come back from very kind of, let's say, hard engineering, you know, you know, uh, you know, that's my background. And I studied material science. I mean, that's like literally on the, you know, the micro, the nanoscale. Um, so, yeah, so I like materials, let's say, actual art uh, stuff rather than, you know, software. I mean, to be honest, I did control systems, so I should be in software. Uh, and I do like software, but it just kind of look at software more 
rather than retail more business to business and mainly solving engineering problems you know so that's kind of where i fit in and i always worked in that space so that's my bias and i have to be frank to everybody that's the kind of thing i again i like uh comp for example you know yes i had at one point a portfolio of properties and not anymore i there's bits you know i don't like about other investments i mean uh, in the industry people know me i like private investments and mainly companies mainly and, and generally early stage companies and again when i say early stage i have to be small caps so i'm zero to 100 because that's where you get the maximum return because a company that's going from a million to two million it's a lot easier to double up than if it's 100 million to 200 million yeah you know you need more capital so as an investor, and you want to you want to bigger you want a bigger slice of that initial pie as well, of course. No, it doesn't have. It just have to be initial pie, you know. But there's a risk to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, we had a discussion about, you know, where, you know, what would be my philosophy investment across the whole portfolio. So, you know, you could go and invest in tips, which is basically they are short term bonds. Uh, inflation related uh so they adjust it so they give you an extra there's different bonds you know you go to real estate you go you can buy an index you know it all i will not cover any of that in youtube i'm just going to give you a kind of a, a generalized area now most of them will give you six twelve if you're lucky percent most of them are you know equity is like an average six but then again that's an average of let's say 10 years return so think of like the irr um uh, and then obviously it's like last year you might have gone 10% up the index, but this year is, is 10% minus because the market went down. So kind of an average out. So some statistic gave me a, a 6% in the last 10 years. Some people get higher. And of course, it depending on which index you are going after, you know, whether it's the SP 100, S&P or what, 500 or, you know, the FTSE, there's different indexes out there. The point I'm trying to say is, is most of them are below double digit returns most of them if you are just going for a, the aggregate you're not picking a stock you are actually going in aggregate so what if you have spare money really there's the way to create wealth and i would have to kind of maybe do a few shorts on these videos it's like the first thing you have to think of first of all like let's go back a step if you have extra capital kill your debt you know you know, that's one. Two, invest in yourself. So it's a lot easier. Maybe you learn something new and got or jump ship in another company and increase your salary by another two, three thousand pounds or five thousand rather than investing. Uh, so that's kind of the first thing you should do. The second thing is, is that if you want to park your money to be safe, but it wouldn't give you a real return because remember, it's a six percent return, and right now inflation is reporting at ten, or even a ten percent return. Is you're not really making money; you just kind of break even. So a lot of these investments, this is my opinion. Okay, I'm stretching that. Is you're just kind of holding your money in a safe place and keeping this value. But if you really want to make money, that is when you kind of go into the VC space because. And what I advocate is like maybe allocate 1%, 2 3 1%, whatever you think you could also lose is very important. It's like, you know, gambling in effect. And I, I don't want to give it gambling uh, with PE and VC as being hard. But what you are doing is you are, uh, you are removing a lot of the risk. So it's nothing like gambling is more like a fixed uh, probability. But in this case, no, you're actually you're doing a lot of due diligence. You're looking at companies, looking at the market. You're building a company that you're generating wealth for the nation. 
and employment and obviously other benefits. It's interesting because I, I, I did actually have this conversation just before we jumped on uh, with someone else yeah. about how they're starting Accelerator and, you know, they're starting kind of, they're focusing on eight to 10 companies as opposed to more American model where you might go for hundreds of companies. I think it's something along the lines of Y Combinator. Do you think that's a good thesis for people to kind of, you know, you, perhaps new investors or people trying to enter the uh, the deep tech or hard tech space to focus on a small amount of investments because it's still statistically, obviously, the companies with the highest returns belong to what one or two percent of your total investment. So, is it more of a kind of let's tr- go across the whole supply chain and get loads and loads of companies under our belt, or should you go hard onto a small handful of them? Okay, that's that's again a, a very tough. Depending on the model you are you're following and what then your criteria. So but let me just finish with this. So what I'm trying to say, what I'm saying is that if you put a bit, so you say, let's say put ninety five percent of your capital in the index and you know you pay off your house and everything, and then you allocate five percent in a very risky investment like say VC, you might lose that. Yes. But if you make that, you could make 10, 20 times that money. And it's so tend to be have a lot of long time. So you can't be kind of pulling out your money, you know, every year or whatever, adjusting it. So for me to create wealth is like, you know, have a safe kind of pot and then a very tiny amount in a very risky. Back to quickly to the lottery. Again, the, the you, you, you can certainly, and I'm advocate in a way, I do play the lottery, the odds. And I literally spent back 10, 20 pounds a year, no more. So it's not, I wouldn't call it uh, so much gambling. And, and half of it probably goes to causes and it costs a lot of. Um, but I will only play when the odds are absolutely in my favor, you know, so, so you can look at statistics. And only I am more of a fun thing that if it, you know, the stars line up and, you know, they bless me. You know, I can work with a substantial amount of money. And I also know where I'm going to put it. I'm not going to go, I told you, James, I'm just going to go with a Ferrari driving. I'm probably 99% of it will go into businesses that yeah. I believe in. So it's kind of, you know, would be nice. It's kind of making my own fund. So that's the kind of capital uh, I would put in. Now, back to your incubator model. So in funds, you have... T- the problem with from when they are selecting, they are kind of selecting on a bit like uh, what I just described in the innovation, but I also looking at multiples, you know, you, so for, I'll give you two examples. So uh, I think they bought offshoots from Imperial. So one company from the energy lab, I don't know them very well. I know about them and I've seen the team briefly. And, and uh, so they basically came out with a software that can design batteries. And the design battery more on the around the thermodynamic, the heat of the battery. So as heat uh, destroys batteries' life, what they have by designing the right shape battery and the right components, it fits it. It removes the heat, so the battery in effect have a longer lasting life. And yeah. now, this is software. It's a good company. Uh, they will make money. I'm sure of it. But I would label them more into that kind of consultancy space where. Uh, an engineer say a, a Ford will come and say, look, we're going to build this truck, help us with designing the battery in the truck or in the car or whatever it is. Now, they probably spent, I don't know, research, I don't know, one of say 5 million, 10 million, and they'll get orders, regular orders from different manufacturers and different people involved in the battery space. 
to design you know, the battery for them. Now, are you going to really leverage that? Very limited. But if I'm a company like you were talking about, silicon and uh, lithium battery, the company, there's a couple of companies where they are looking at a very efficient anode or very efficient cathode, that's kind of batteries I was made with cathode and anode, you know, that is can be, say, half the thickness, meaning the battery size will be half as big volume wise, but it will have twice as much energy. Now, you can then sell millions of these units. So again, the process is back to this deep tech. You could be spending 10 million, 5 million developing the process, the science of it, but the potential of it is maybe 100 million. But to become, so that's kind of, you've made a product that you spend, say, 5 to 10 million, you multiple maybe 10, 100. Who knows? Because you could literally sell it in so many batteries. So it's just like USB stick, you know, you design the USB stick, uh, stick and then for every laptop you put a port, you charge one penny. Well, there's millions of pennies here, you know, and every year, and also many devices have more than one, uh, my desk, my, my, my laptop have four, I, you know, I don't know if they have went a bit overboard, <laughs> not that I use it, it's the only one other, one or two. Uh, now I realize I need them for my mic and YouTube. <laughs> so if you are a YouTuber, you definitely need other USB sticks. So the point I'm trying to say is two investments, similar, say, maybe capital, or maybe it doesn't have to be off, but one have a potential of 10x, and one could be potential 100x. Yeah? yeah. So so it's it's not just about the, the ideas, like where, how it will plan out, you know, pan out. And that is one of the things... You know, you know, the investment industry is always looking for, you know, okay, I'll spend 10 million, but if I make a hundred times, I'm happy rather than putting 10 million and I just get 10 times, you know, and that removes a lot of the risk. That's why part of kind of when I was mentioning about the lottery and only play when the odds are still, I'll say 140 million to win the lottery, <laughs> but when... But if it's the winning is like 140, like thinking, okay, I'll play that two pound fifty, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but if it's the winning is ten pounds, like ten million, I feel well, you know, it actually makes no difference to be honest. But if I'm getting to play that ten, say I have ten goes. Well, to yeah, well, it's nothing. It has nothing to do with the probability and everything to do yeah. with the payoff, right? I mean, like exactly, yeah. exactly. The payoff is exactly fixed. So I would only play when the numbers are so. You know, there are maybe uh, there. Are, I mean, I'm looking into that because a friend of mine who likes to bet and also uh, what you call turf betting because of horses. Um, so he kind of shows me, okay, there's this scratch card is you can win a half a million, but the odds are eight million to one. You know, yeah. okay, okay, that's a better odds than winning the lotto, which is is. 140 million. You're thinking, okay, so now I could buy two tickets, you know, to my 20 pounds. I'm trying to make it into 40 pounds. <laughs> it's, it's all fun, this bit. I'm not going to go and spend more than that. So I'm just kind of saying it is just for fun. And, and so I wouldn't support gambling or anything, but for fun, do that. It's a bit like, I do, as we said, we play both poker. It's fun. But it's when you take it to the next level, it could be dangerous and you have to be aware of that. Well, but, I, I want to touch on poker as well quickly. I mean, what, uh, are, the, what are the business lessons from poker? Because I know a lot of, it's, it's well known that like a, a lot of leading investors, founders, you know, business people, they all played or have played or casually played poker. Um, what do you think are the biggest lessons from that game into the world of business? Um, 
look, it's 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 an and I don't want to sound racist or sexist or that it's kind of a man's thing. You know, I, I went with my girlfriend at the time, you know, uh, separated, you know, kids. Just, I would meet all my men friends, you know, and we'd just sit down, have, you know, something, you know, like Jack Daniels or whatever drink. I would buy Cuban cigars because I get them from Spain. You know, it's something social, you know, among men, you know, eight people around the table. And, yeah. and we went full on, you know, we... We had the full table, the cars, the chips, and even on our anniversary at the time, my partner cooked a cake in the shape of a poker table with the chips. Wow, yeah, this serious. Just probably want to get rid of me. <laughs> I mean, was it? Was it like? Was it a bit passive aggressive? Like, oh, you love poker so much, here's a cake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, go and stay there. You know. <laughs> No, she was lo- she's lovely and she still is lovely, but you know, sadly we separated anyway. But we she's the mother of my kids, so I have full respect. Uh, and it's been you know, we separated in a good terms, nothing bad. Okay, yeah. Um, so that's positive. But the point is so back to here. So you have the social aspect, you know, you're you're with your friends, your close friends, and you know, you're enjoying a bit of time together. That's the social aspect. Okay. Then you have the other bit, is it, you know, it's uh, Poker is a kind of funny game. It's one of those ones that, you know, there is a degree of maths, but let's say 50% is maths. And and I did mention that lady, you know, uh, the book. And then 50% it's psychology. Because well, what was her name? What was her name again in case listeners are interested? Maya, Maya. Uh, was it Maya? Uh, it was I think, Mar- Maria Konnikova. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a few of them, you know. I, I put really it on my reading list, yeah. You you, okay. you, you talked a big talk for that. I'll be interested yeah. in reading that, definitely. It's, a, it's I think it's about five, six years old. I read it, obviously, you know, when something comes to poker and everybody, basically she's a Harvard professor or a lecturer in psychology. And then, you know, basically she took that challenge to become, to understand the poker mindset. So... The thing is about it, it is life like that. It's, it's, you might have the product, but it's how you get on with people, how you see, you know, the opposition, what other people are bluffing or not. So that's that's the fun, I would say, in poker. And again, you have money, you have a stake, which is kind of, uh, again, what we did among friends, we would say put a 10 pounds or 20 pounds and whoever wins would get his money back. But the rest of the money, so it's like 10 of us on a table, I think it was, 8 or 10, uh, because some days it changes. And so it's like 120 pounds every time we play. And the winner will get his 10 pounds or 20 pounds, say, back. Uh, you know, so it'll be, say, 100 pounds with 10, 100 pounds each. So we have 80. And then what we do, we'll keep that as we play. We will play every fortnight. Um, and then by the end of the year, we have this pots and then we would go on a trip using that money so we'll go to Biarritz or Amsterdam and this. so it's a weekend among friends and that money in effect is saved for those trips wow so we'll all benefit from it it's a great this is a, a great social bonding um yeah you know thing to do I, yeah. I don't think I can ever do that I don't think I can ever yeah. do that with my friends it would just it would turn into a huge fight and argument like if I won I'm not <laughs> keeping my money I'm going to take your money as well that's how I would end up. But it's funny because I no. I played a bit casually yeah. with friends, but for me, like I, I used to play a lot of online, right? I wouldn't be honest with you, like by, oh, by myself. Work online. This is friends. This is friends and yeah, yeah. and they all 
they are just as mad as me I have to admit or they all some of them have businesses some you know but we were all kind of an, a good understanding to say look this money it's think of back up when I was talking about playing 20 pounds a year on my lotto because I know half of it will go to charity yeah. So really, I'm only using 10. So, so rather than giving to a bank, you know, I'm giving it to a cause that it will end up with a good cause. So so I have this. That's the other thing about my investment. It has to, the, the yes, people who I deal with. Yeah, the ethics comes uh, quite high. Well, it is the highest thing. You know, you, you, know, you don't want uh, anybody who, you know, unethical. I've seen, by the way, some founders who are unethical or unprepared, uh, which is... Again, um, and it puts me off, you know. Uh, it's a bit like Elon Musk interview recently, you know, the, the BBC. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was hilarious. Yeah. Oh, it was so entertaining, yeah, like, honestly. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, just, I just stopped after 20 minutes. I said, you know what? I, I, mean, I missed it. I missed it live. I just had the highlight reel. I was just like listening again. Oh, again. Even, you are even more efficient than me. I thought, oh, this is really made the whole effort. And then, oh my God, I, I literally spent, I think, 20 minutes, 22 minutes into it, and I just gave up. I said, the guy is not prepared. The BCC, you know. Ar just, ar just arrogance. It, it was pure arrogance that he, th he thinks he can go in there and, and, just, and just push his agenda and not ask anything of, you know, of substance or value. Um, and he's just a puppet for the for the for the BBC and the the political agenda they're trying to push. Uh, it's just embarrassing for everyone involved, frankly, except for Musk. Yeah, I mean to be honest, he he wasn't prepared. I mean, if I'm even if I'm a puppet, you know, prepare something is for your own good. <laughs> it's like I would prepare 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 defense. I could I could almost forgive exactly. I think you make a great point because I can almost forgive the line of questioning being so shit, frankly. But <laughs> for him to not even have a response to like a very basic question being asked of him, like oh, there's hate speech. What's the example? And he can't even list one. Is embarrassing. Yeah. And it, 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 I wouldn't go so, I would almost go as far to say that it calls a lot of kind of mainstream media into question, right? If you then look at what the BBC posted afterwards about that interview and the way they framed it and the wording and language they used around it, not kind of putting the light on anything that he said or anything that happened and turning it on yeah, mask. That's not going all for, yeah. that's just, it's, it's typical mass media. And I think obviously it's been happening since the, the dawn of time, the dawn of media, but I think things like Twitter, social media, especially in the last decade is actually bringing light um, to the fact that we shouldn't just take everything that we see in mass media at face value. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's I mean, you touched on many things. I mean, on a, Personal level, or I mean, I feel sorry for him in a way, and not. I mean, he should know better. I mean, he is a the technology rep for you know the, the head, so the head of should, North America. It's just yeah, it gets so even worse. Know about Twitter's news, the ins and outs of Twitter, you know. And and he said at the beginning of the interview, "I'm here for Twitter." So you better read it you know, about Twitter's history, its numbers, talk to people, so and get some facts. I mean. You should know that as a basic reporter. So from him is on a professional level, he's basically under, you know, doesn't score very highly. And then the fact that the BBC didn't even give him anything, that's, you know, it's an, even worse. So It did, it did yeah. feel like a kind of an ad hoc. I would put it more on him, frankly, because it, it did feel like a kind of let's dive on an opportunity yeah. and just, you know, see where it takes us. Yeah, not over whatsoever. Over. 
Yeah, I, I don't know the backstory of it. Like maybe, you know, Musk called him, look, I can see you today in the next hour. <laughs> you know, like, okay, then yeah. you don't give him the, you know, you think, but... It was a bit, it was a bit like that, but even if you're asking the question, right? I think the situation was he had been planning it for a while, and they just decided to go for it one day, and then Musk said, "Yeah, let's meet up that same day." So he kind of had like a 24 hour turnaround. But even then, I mean, there's no excuse to anything you've just said about knowing the ins and outs of Twitter, having a good understanding of who Musk is and what he stands for, and what's what's changed since he took over. Yeah, there was another incident. This is obviously it might be like a, I mean, don't link it, you know, as such. I think Jordan Peterson was having an interview with uh, with this lady uh, reporter at the time, probably forty years ago, and again uh, she was attacking him constantly. So it's like almost the agenda, just attack rather than being humble and being humility. I think yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Humility. I get, by the way, a lot of. Uh, founders who would come and they expect me to give them the answers. I'm like saying, hold on a second, you should be the one who's an expert. You are the domain expert. So, uh, you know, and that's one thing, I mean, to, to your audience, especially the startup, you know, don't come to an investor that so he knows more than you. I mean, this is like, no, no. And, and it happens a lot, by the way. You know, I mean, yeah, people yeah. would come and say, this is the cost. And I said, look, I, I've been in manufacturing. I kind of know the numbers. Roughly, you need... X amount of people, you know, it's a bit like product developers. There's like that many, you know, low level master, so many numbers. You know, you can create a unit team, you know, like a platoon, you know, of soldiers, of engineers, of software developers. You kind of have a structure. And for you not to know that and you're trying to pitch something for me, uh, it's horrible or the science is not there or they don't have the main expertise. It's... Um, some of the scientists, uh, I've seen a lot of founders who they basically have a technology and then they're trying to fit it to a problem. I think that's a very bad move. I think it's very important to have a problem and then try to find, you know, yeah. solutions that optimize it's, that. It's particularly pertinent as well, isn't it? In like kind of, um, should we say hard tech or heavy science ventures or startups where you know, you kind of get married to this technology essentially, or, you know, you have a PhD or a professor who's been, who spent kind of 20 years in the field and has perfected the technology, but has not really thought about what the commercial applications of it could be or who the customer is. Um, and it's a classic kind of problem, uh, solution searching for a problem. This is, this is two things. So, so two things. So for example, there's, um, for example, there's maybe software development houses who they specialize in uh, blockchain, for example, right? That was obviously a fad few years back and kind of uh, still there, but it's very small now. You know, so they are literally selling you a blockchain solution, a solution you don't need blockchain, you know? Uh, so they, that's kind of their stuff. Now, in terms of lecturers, again, there is, it depends who is the lecturer usually. And, and that comes into investors. Again, if you come to me, I will have my biases. I have my experience, you know, I kind of build that. So I would be within that space. So, so I would suggest for people who are, say, researchers, definitely explore other uh, ideas, other peoples in the field. So, uh, and certainly contact from companies and build up on that technology. And remember, if someone is spending, you know, all day long, you know, and weeks or years on the problem. Frankly, that's what he will know. So it's nothing against the guy. It's just he is kind of 
cocooned in that space now uh, and you know researchers that's what they do they research they don't need to worry about the market it's the, the it's like us we were talking about being in engineering you know uh, i'm fascinating building something it doesn't matter whether it gets built to make money or built for not just for the sake of building it you know like authors some people would just write for the sake of writing now if it becomes successful great if not this one so it's kind of uh, back to that, we never really answered that for about the uh, incubator numbers. So back to that, actually, this kind of links to it, is as a fund, you know, it is we, I, I see nearly a thousand companies a year. Okay, now, some of them are repeat, some of them takes maybe two minutes I spend on them, and some I spend hours. It's really... Depends. I mean, I could be even more than a thousand, to be honest, but in actually putting some effort into it, it's really a thousand because I could go on an exhibition. There'll be like over two days, like 320 exhibitors in NEC on, say, material science. I will scan the floor, obviously, before I go. And then I would pick, say, maybe 50, 60 of those to definitely see. But I still scan the rest of the shows. I still walk and see, obviously getting suppliers. I'm not interested in suppliers. I see people who are professional in the issue or, or authors of books or, or magazines from that particular field. Obviously, I skip a lot of them. But I would still explore some companies say, oh, this is really interesting product. This is really nice. You know, it's just almost like connecting the dots. So I'm not necessarily talking to them. And I might just come and say, look, the series can you please give me an introduction but then i'll end up really interested in maybe in the 300 maybe six that i like and probably the six you know and of course then i report to my boss and uh you know we discuss it and then make arrangement extra meetings with uh the six and more like into you know, an hour or so and then probably from the six we write that to one and even then we will be doing that multiple times so we'll have so it's like one in a thousand we would pick to invest in, you know. Um, yeah. But in that journey, I would have already seen maybe 40, 50 companies I'm interested in, which I will keep on following up, by the way, kind of saying, okay, this is, let's see what this one will do, you know. And some companies I will come and really like the founder. I thought, wow, this guy is you know, in his mid-20s already making headways. And I'm thinking, yeah, this guy is an execution guy, but maybe he's not the same product. You know, maybe his the product he's building is not great, but he's a great at executing. And you get the other way around. You get this really good, interesting product, but the founder is the worst possible person. You know, he's all over the place. So what you can do, in effect, is say, if they're in a similar space, maybe they should work together. It's like mm. you get the guy who's really building yeah. science and one yeah. guy who's building. I haven't done that yet, but that would be something maybe in the future. You get somebody... You know, so like a piston engine, you get you know up and down, you know, positive and negative. So well, again, this is this is more of the incubator accelerator model, right? You would come in yeah. as like, as an advisor, or you'd have you know a group of people that you worked with that would be very good at kind of matching up you know teams with each other and hiring appropriately. Now, being in the say the deep tech space, I haven't seen most incubators to be frank today not in that space. So. I do contact few of them and I attend, but most of them, let's say in London, there's a lot like fit around the FinTech, B2B or B2C, yeah. whether it's apps or software. So for me, the incubator space accelerator 
I haven't seen it as valuable as I want it to be because the, the areas that I'm interested that happen to need, you know, laboratories or they are uh, uh, spin-outs of existing companies. Well, yeah, I mean, so nine, nine times out of 10, they're all, they're all run by the kind of university program. I mean, even things like, you know, a lot of the big names, I won't name any names, but a lot of kind of big universities in the UK that you would just think, of course they have, you know, they have the laboratory, they have the setup, they have zero, you know, capacity for creating science heavy startups for spinning them out. Um, it's a, it's a real gap in the market, frankly. Uh, that's why you see more and more people coming back to their kind of the place where they graduated setting something up. Uh, to encourage that kind of entrepreneurship within the science community at a university? Uh, there are funds already invested in that space. I mean, they already there's quite a few of them, you know, like one of them I know, I don't know them very well, Zinc, you know, and there's what you call, you have catapults. And catapults is only about six in the country, which is mainly focused for SMEs, where if this kind of kind of think of it like an SME coming up with a product, they would go. So think of an incubator for businesses. Um, and they are called catapults and they have what say one on space, one on, this is in Oxford, just like satellite application. And basically they have a combination of people who are independent going there. And the, the advantage of what catapults is they actually have the equipment. So think of it like a mini research center. Now, the, the advantage of that, for example, uh, we look into that, obviously, I mean, it's no secret, is there are already businesses trying to establish another product. So for us, it's more capital, growth capital. or So we are not kind of, you, you have removed a lot of the risk, but obviously the return is a lot less. You know, they, people know what they're doing and they need extra capital. They could maybe get grants or whatever. You know, there's opportunities there. Um, and accelerators, it depends on the type of founders. Again, if you are dealing with, uh, we deal also with spin-off. I mean, part of, again, back to the YouTube, part of kind of promoting myself and this, is trying to find these companies, the, the, the spin-offs from businesses or spin-offs from universities. But the, the talent, you know, again, it is like filtering the businesses. You know, like I said, you know, we said one designs, uh, uh, batteries for heat efficiency, while another one designed a completely new type of battery, you know, similar cost, they bought spin-offs, I would invest in the one who would build up new batteries, you know, because I could sell more batteries than, you know, designing. So it's, a, again, it's, it, it varies. Uh, I have no kind of against any company or any uh, universities, I'm pretty neutral. But as long as they fit the profile that, you know, you are their innovation as something new or you are, you know, making use of that cost reduction and different technology, and you, then you have a market that you're going to exp potentially explode in that market, then I'm all for it. I'm happy to deal with anybody, really. Uh, they come in different forms and sizes. You know, it's, uh, I'm not, uh, there's no... Was my role because I be frank because I do two things. I, even though I work as an investment, I do on the side help companies uh, that I would sign and help them raise capital because I don't have the capital, um, you know, to sign up with other companies, you know, to because I, obviously I know investors that so I can say, look, I, here's a company that I think is good. I've kind of done my due diligence. Obviously, they have to do their own due diligence and. Uh, 
and act on that investment. But generally, if you are an investor and then you approach another investor, it's more, you know, we have a relationship and a big understanding. There's a degree of trust. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of lowers the bar for the company to get funded, you know, but only with lowering because the person also have to do their, their due diligence. That's again, back to the companies I want to see or people again, uh, if they want to invest along my side, I do ask every single one have to do their own due diligence and where they stand in their financial investment because with all the good intentions, companies are, you know, going, you know, building a, a business is very, very hard, you know, and things can go wrong. Not that the people are in any way um, bad, you know, so that's the thing is like you can filter the, the market, you filter the people, you now put them on the race and then they don't win, you know, <laughs> and it could be the timing, it could be, you know, there is, I mean, I like there is a VC, Bill Gross. I don't know what you know about him. He did a TED talk. He back on the, the question of timing. So he been investing and he had an incubator more in the clean tech. Uh, he now has a company. Called, I, I love his product, by the way, concentrated solar. So when you have basically mirrors and the sun shines and yeah. it's concentrated into one. So that he came up with a, a bit of, took him years to figure it out. But it's such a simple concept in hindsight, how he could improve the process. Well, I won't bore you too much about it, but basically he came up with, let's say, the not so much weighting, but kind of the order of why a company would succeed. So he has like, time. I, I still remember them, let me remember. So first one is timing. Uh, the other one is team and execution. Third one is the, uh, I think the idea. I think fourth one, I think business model. And the very last one is funding. I know the funding is the very last one. You know, so, you know, because if you can build something and say small with little money and execute it and start selling it, people would- you Don't need funding. Yeah, and or people would rush to give you the capital. That's why what happens, you know, in many companies, so as they get bigger, as bit like, you know, a bit like power law, you know, as you start have presence, People say, oh, and you, you start to hear about it and you're creating word of mouth. Suddenly everybody wants to. I mean, yeah. that's why Theranos, in effect, uh, became a, even though she was fraud, but had that winning formula that, you know, she's a woman in the Silicon Valley, she's young, and she has all these politicians who are so well connected throwing money at her. <laughs> and then everyone wants and, to and jump on the hype train and you don't want to be the person who misses out. That's a bit. But we're seeing it. We see it all the time, right? We saw crypto or a similar thing. But now we're seeing it with AI in terms of not, not the fraudulent aspect, but more so the, the VCs just they see this hype trade and everyone piles on. Um and it completely it, it, it can cause bubbles. Um I wonder if we'll see the same thing with generative AI or whether whether it has any lasting value. Oh definitely. I mean generative AI, you know. To see VC again, you are talking about aggregates because I haven't seen majority of VCs. Let's say not PE, PE private equity. In some set of that is VC. So private equity generally they buy existing businesses. Majority of them they come from financial background. Let's say investment back because they know how to close a deal. They buy a company and they leverage it, just like buying a house. It's really simple, but and they use the business cash flow. Uh, 
uh, to pay for the loan. They have acquired the debt. And then over time, you amortize, you get two things. You remove the loan. At the same time, you build the business. It's a very standard model. And actually, if you want to get rich, that's another approach, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, just by existing businesses, merge them together or build it. Obviously, pick a business that you set that you think is profitable and you are comfortable to be in that space. Uh, I see a lot of people doing it in the software business, actually, like buying software businesses, either rolling them up or applying their own expertise to grow them. Um, it's a very interesting space, actually. All these yeah, little, little shops just buying up. Restaurants, cafes, I mean, it's, it's, it's in any sector. It's, there's no specification. It's just, again, it's how many can you uh, bolt on together, how much the multiple of that company. Obviously, uh, a business that with a higher profit margin is more, will, uh, will, uh, what's called, will give you a return, a higher multiple. You know, if you are an 80% profit margin, you know, you might be, let's say in the tech world, there'll be a multiple of 10, 20. But if you are an engineering, you might be getting a multiple of two. You know, so the same effort, you know, you're getting many times. So it really doesn't matter. It's just um, the conversation is about, you know, can you make money? You know, but it's hard work. You know, running a business is hard work, putting the deal together, sourcing the company. But, you know, if you... It doesn't matter what age I am not uh, at all uh, worried about. If you have the energy and you want to do it, go ahead and do it. You know, just uh, try it out. It's all experience. I mean, I thought, you know, had dealt in so many other things. It's like most of them, you know, it, it turned out to be all right. You know, it's, if, if I lost any money, I learned experience and made contact. Like we, we kind of going to, to my CFA when I joined the CFA, I attended lots of events, got to make lots of people, and I created my own group. And that led me eight, nine years later to potentially opening a YouTube channel. So is that skill set? I just did it for fun, frankly. It wasn't anything, you know, I wasn't getting paid. I'm volunteered. And I was doing like 20 events the last year. I was like 20 events a year. So, you know, obviously I have the cloud of the CFA UK society behind me. So that helps a degree. But uh, the work is the same, you know, and this was fun. So kind of the next stage is to put it on a bigger platform. And monetize it. So, uh, so it's like, don't forget okay. that part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of an evolution again as innovation. You tried it out so many times. You know what to do, and you take it to that level. Gosh, man. I mean, we, we do have to end soon, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great ending point because I can't wait to see you know where your where your channel goes. Um, looking forward to that first release. Just let us know when it's out. And we'll, we'll help you yeah, with the promotion and everything. Oh, we'll collaborate in all of this. <laughs> <laughs>